1: Once upon a time, and welcome to the Story Story Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Ann Harding, and I have some stories for you. This is a podcast to hear traditional stories told by some of the best storytellers in the world. It will take you to long ago and far away, and will bring you back safely. The stories for this episode are spooky, quite spooky, and may have moments that are not appropriate for younger listeners. If you're responsible for tender ears, you might want to listen first, or forge ahead and enjoy the chills. Tap, tap. Tap, tap, tap. There was a knocking sound on glass. I was sitting on the couch and turned to look out the window. There was no one there. I turned back to my book. Tap, tap, tap. I looked through the window again. The wind wasn't blowing and there were no branches touching the window. I looked further out and saw a squirrel sitting on the fence holding a crab apple. <laughs> a little fuzzy mischief. I was going to watch him throw the next one and then chase him off the fence. Tap, tap. The sound came again, but the squirrel hadn't moved. Tap, tap, tap. The sound, it wasn't coming. From the window. It was coming from my mirror. Something was tapping from inside my mirror. The first teller for this episode is Ingrid Nixon. She is an award winning world traveling storyteller who loves nothing more than to whisk away listeners on journeys of the imagination, exploration, nail biters, lies, tall tales, traditional and personal stories. She tells them all, bringing characters to life using voices, gestures, and animated facial expressions. This is a story from her album, Lost Hearts and Other Creepy Stories, and this is the title tale, Lost Hearts.
0: The year was 1811, and a carriage pulled up before a large brick manor house. And the carriage's sole occupant, a young boy by the name of Stephen Elliot, hopped out of the carriage, ran up the stairs, and rang the doorbell. And as he waited for someone to answer the door, he surveyed the manor house and the grounds. The manor house was huge. The main part of the building had three stories, and there were two wings. In the distance, he could see stables and a servant's house. And the grounds, the grounds were closely clipped and trimmed. The house belonged to Stephen's elderly cousin, Mr. Abner Dabney. Now, Stephen had never met his aged cousin before. And the reason why he was meeting him now is because six months before, Stephen had become an orphan. And Mr. Dabney agreed to adopt Stephen. No one seemed to know much about this elderly cousin, Mr. Dabney. He was a recluse, a scholar. He wrote extensively about the practices of pagans. He was believed to be a world authority on ancient rituals. He kept to his writings, his books... At last, the butler Parks opened the door and invited young Stephen in, and as Stephen stood there in the foyer, all of a sudden a door flew open from Mr. Dabney's study, and Mr. Dabney came out, eager for Stephen to be welcome. "'Welcome, welcome, young Master Stephen. How was your journey, and how old are you?' Mr. Dabney was tall, thin, austere. Stephen said, "'It was fine, sir.' Oh, good, good, said Dabney. Say, how how old are you? When is your birthday? It seemed odd that Mr. Dabney had asked about Stephen's age twice in the first thirty seconds of meeting him. Stephen answered, I'm eleven, sir. My birthday is next March. Ah, oh, very good, very good, said Mr. Dabney. Pox, take young Master Stephen and get him situated. Give him dinner or supper or whatever is appropriate. And then Mr. Dabney turned around and disappeared into his study. The butler took young Master Stephen to the kitchen and introduced him to the housekeeper, Mrs. Bunch. Mrs. Bunch had been at the house for decades, and she was the cheerful sort. And she and Master Stephen were the best of friends within 15 minutes. Mrs. Bunch knew a lot about the house and had no hesitation imparting her information. In the months to come, Stephen had many questions about the house. Things like, why is there a temple in the middle of the yard? Is it ever used for anything? And who is that in that big painting on the stairs, the man who's holding the human skull? Well, Mrs. Bunch was able to answer some of his questions there was one November night. Stephen was sitting with Mrs. Bunch in front of the fire in the drawing room, and just out of the blue, Stephen asked, Is Mr. Dabney a good man? Will he go to heaven? Mrs. Bunch responded, Oh, dear child, I've never seen such a generous soul. He took you in, didn't he? And you're not the first. You know, you are the third child he's tried to help. About 20 years ago, he took in a young boy, and several years ago, a young girl. Then Stephen asked the obvious, Well, where are they now? Mrs. Bunch shrugged. Don't know. Curious it is. The girl? Mr. Dabney went out for a walk one day and came back with her. She was just wandering. She said she had no family. But I'm guessing she had gypsy blood. She lived with us for, oh, Three weeks, and then early one morning we got up and she was gone. Oh, Master Dabney, he was wonderful about it. He had the pawns on the property dragged and everything, but we couldn't find a trace. We think she ran off with the gypsies who must have been passing by. Park said he heard them singing in the woods all night the night that she went missing. And what about the boy? asked Stephen. Oh, he was a foreigner. Giovanni, he called himself. He came on winter's day tootling a tin flute. Master took him in. But like the girl, he was off one fine morning. Can't trust a foreigner. Left his flute behind, he did. It's right up there. And she pointed to a flute that was up on the shelves. Stephen spent the remainder of the evening tootling on that tin flute. But that night, Stephen had a curious dream. You see, Stephen's bedroom was on the top floor of the house. And down the hall from his room was an old, unused bathroom that was always locked. The door had a glazed glass panel that had been covered with a curtain, but now the curtain was gone. In his dream, Stephen was looking through the glass panel into the bathroom. The moonlight was shining through the window, illuminating a lead-lined bathtub up against the wall. And in Stephen's dream, there was a figure lying in that bathtub. The figure was small and thin and wrapped in a shroud-like garment. Its thin lips held a crooked, dreadful smile, and its hands were pressed tightly over the region of the heart. In his dream, Stephen watched the lips of the figure part, and this moan came out, this
2: moan,
0: and the arms began to stir, and Stephen staggered back from the window. And he did so with such force, he woke himself up. But he was not in his bed. He was standing in front of the bathroom door. And now awake, with a courage beyond what you would normally expect from a young boy, he stepped forward and looked through that window. And the bathtub was empty. The next morning, he told Mrs. Bunch about his dream, and she was impressed. And she promptly replaced the curtain on the bathroom door. Stephen also told Mr. Dabney, who was very interested, And who took copious notes in his ever present notebook. After the dream, two curious things happened. The first, after another fitful night of sleep for Stephen, Mrs. Bunch was mending Stephen's nightgown. She said, Gracious me, Master Stephen, how did you manage to tear your nightshirt in this way? Indeed, there were slits. "'on the nightshirt. "'They were on the left side of the chest, "'parallel slits about six inches long, "'some of them not quite piercing the fabric.' Stephen said, "'I didn't do that. "'I don't know where those came from, "'but they look very much like the scratches "'outside my bedroom door, "'and I didn't do those either.' "'Mrs. Bunch put down her sewing and looked at him. "'Then she went upstairs to check his bedroom door. "'She came back a few moments later,' Indeed, those are scratches. Well, they're too high up for an animal, a cat or a dog or a rat. Not that we have any of those here. Do you lock your door at night, Stephen? Stephen said, I do. And then I say my prayers. She said, good boy. The second curious thing was when Mrs. Bunch and Stephen were in the games room before bed. The butler, Parks, burst in. He wasn't aware that Stephen was in the room. He said, Master can get his own wine if he wants it in the evening. I am not going down into that cellar again. I don't know if it's rats or beasts or the wind, even though I don't know how the wind would ever get in the cellar, but you can hear them speaking. Mrs. Bunch said, I've never heard of rats speaking. If there ever were a rat in this house, Parks said, "'I've heard sailors talk about talking rats. "'I can hear voices. "'I bet if I put my ear to the far wall of the cellar, "'I'd hear voices plain as day.' "'Mrs. Bunch said, "'Oh, Parks, you don't want to scare the boy.' "'And she indicated Stephen. "'That was the first Parks became aware "'that Stephen was even in the room. "'He tried to cover up what he had said and said, "'Oh, Master Stephen, he he knows I'm just pulling his leg.' Stephen laughed, but Stephen knew that Parks was not joking. By now, it was getting on towards March. Stephen stood outside on a cold March day. The wind was blowing through the naked branches of the trees. Stephen felt as though there was an endless procession of spirits flowing by on the breeze. After lunch, Mr. Dabney, the elder cousin, said to Stephen, "'Would you come by my study tonight at 11 o'clock? "'I shall be busy until that time, "'and don't bother to tell Mrs. Bunch or Parks "'that I have requested this. "'Just go to bed at your usual time.' Stephen agreed. He was rather excited to have a late-night meeting with his elder cousin." Later that day, as he was passing by the study, the study door was open and Stephen could see Mr. Dabney inside fussing with what looked like a pan of charcoal there in front of the fireplace. Beside him on a table, there was an old silver chalice and also a decanter full of red wine. Mr. Dabney was sprinkling incense on the charcoal. Stephen went to his bedroom at the usual time that evening and waited. He went to the window of his room and looked out over the grounds. The wind had died and the moon was out. He could hear owls hooting and other rustles. The world felt restless. And then two figures caught his eye. They were standing on the lawn to the side of the house, a boy and a girl looking up at him. Something about the girl made him think of the figure in the bathtub from his dream. The girl was half-smiling, her hands clasped over her heart. The boy was thin, with ragged clothing. He held his arms up in the air, and he clawed the air toward Stephen. His nails were very long, and they caught the moonlight. But what was most horrifying was on the left side of his chest there was a black, gaping hole. The boy clawed the air toward Stephen, and then he smiled, and the boy and the girl ran toward the house and disappeared from sight. After this, Stephen was very shaken, and at 11 o'clock he made his way down to the study and he was standing outside the door of the study. He could hear voices inside. He heard his elderly cousin speak and then cry out. Stephen tried the doorknob. The key was in the lock, so it wasn't locked, but the door would not open. Stephen pushed the door. It would not give. Inside, he heard his cousin cry out, and then a choking sound that went on and on and on, and then silence. The door yielded to Stephen's push. And inside the study, there was Mr. Dabney in his chair, his head thrown back, his face contorted with rage and pain. And on the left side of his chest, there was a horrible laceration where something had clawed through his clothing, clawed through his tissue, ripped up the bone, and exposed his heart. There was no blood on his hands. And a long knife lay on the table next to him, perfectly clean. The window to the study was open. They called the police, but when the police arrived and saw the scene, they were perplexed. In time, Stephen inherited the house. And years later, going through his elderly cousin's papers, he came across... His notebook. And in Mr. Dabney's notebook, his last entry was this It is strongly believed by the ancients that certain processes considered barbaric today could perpetuate life. It is of particular interest to me that concept of ascendancy, that by absorbing aspects of individuals one might achieve a certain spiritual insight. To test this, I have been conducting an experiment. It is to absorb the hearts of three youth whose collective age is less than 25 years. I've been very careful to select individuals who will not be missed by society. The first was a young Italian by the name of Giovanni. The second, a young gypsy girl named Phoebe. And tonight I will complete my trifecta by consuming the heart of my young cousin, Stephen, who came to me as a most unexpected gift. It's important the heart be taken from a living creature— And in doing so, one must deal with the inconvenience of getting rid of the mortal remains, but behind the wall of the wine cellar has proved convenient for that. It's true, one can be bothered by spirits, or dare I say ghosts, but that is really a small inconvenience. I find it best to burn the heart to ash, and then mix the ash into a strong wine for consumption. After tonight, I anticipate that I shall achieve eternal life. And so ended his entry. The authorities were perplexed by Mr. Dabney's death, and they determined that likely a wild cat had come into the house and in some bizarre way attacked him. But after reading the diary, Stephen Elliot reached a very Different conclusion.
1: Today's fairy tale sponsor is Haunted House for Grown Ups. Looking for chills that are scarier than ghosts, zombies, and terrifying clowns? Come to the Haunted House for Grown Ups to face the terrors and ennui of your adult existence. See yourself in the Hall of Mirrors and realize you look like your parents but with less hair. And more wrinkles. Feel the thrill of having your bank balance shared with everyone in your group. Let the terror of tax season come early in the hall of accountants. Can you escape without being audited? Feel your life slip away in the office merry-go-round, where you respond to the 80th email and look up to realize it's only 10.30 a.m. And if you still feel brave... Walk through the maze of your greatest embarrassments. All those moments of you saying, You too, when your waitress said, Enjoy your meal. Or that one time someone honked at you when you zoned out at a red light. Or fully relived the day you had a piece of lettuce in your teeth for six hours and no one pointed it out. Come to the haunted house for grown-ups. Experience the terror of adulting. If you dare. This episode is also brought to you by the new Patreon supporter, Ryan. Ryan has the unique ability to pick out the most haunted item from a thrift store. It could be an adorable plushy stuffed animal that also contains the lost spirit of the doomed-shipped Bright Star. Or the chair that looks so cute in the kitchen nook. It has a poltergeist from 1913. Fortunately, after a monetary exchange, Ryan is now in control of these souls. Let's hope she uses this power for good. She is also a generous supporter of storytelling, which is pretty cool. A big thank you to her and all the other patrons of the podcast. You are the victory of a full sized candy bar after a block of houses giving out Smarties on Halloween night. Tap, tap, tap. The sound came from inside the mirror. I was at an angle and could not see my own face in the reflection, and I was sure I didn't want to. Tap, tap, tap. I came close to the mirror and looked carefully, trying to understand what was making that noise. Tap, tap, tap. Then I saw it. A gnarled finger reaching up and tapping the glass. I could see nothing but the finger dirt around the nail, or was it something else? The nail was thick and pointed, and again it tapped and then a long scrape. I reached over to the couch and picked up the blanket I had been using. Without looking at the glass, I draped the blanket over the mirror. The second teller for this episode is Antonio Sacre. His tales of growing up bilingually in a Cuban and Irish-American household have inspired children worldwide to gather their own family stories and become storytellers themselves. His stories have been published in award-winning books and audio recordings. Antonio's latest album, World's Second Best Dad, was selected as one of the year's best storytelling recordings by the 2021 Storytelling World Awards program. This story is one of his scariest, and comes with a chill warning. This, of course, is the tale, La Llorona.
2: She cries for her children. Now the people use the story of La Llorona, the weeping woman, to make their children behave. If the kids are upstairs not going to sleep, the parents will say, you better go to sleep or La Llorona will come and take you away. And the little kids say, okay, mommy, we're going to sleep. When they get a little bit older, they're not quite sure if La Llorona exists. They'll be upstairs messing around. The parents will say, do your homework. We don't want to do our homework. You better do your homework or La Yorona's going to take you away. The kids start doing their homework. They look at each other. Hey, you believe La Llorona will take us away if we don't do our homework? Uh Uh-uh. You believe La Llorona will take us away if we don't do our homework? No way. Why are we doing our homework then? I don't know. The kids will start messing around. At this point, one of the grandparents will sneak up the stairs put their fingers on the door and just barely open it so the kids see this door opening by itself, and the grandparents in the hallway will say, <coughs> The kids will say, "Mommy, Poppy, Tell La we're doing our homework." They'll start doing their homework at works for the rest of the school year. When the kids get to be 7th or 8th graders, they don't really believe in La Llorona anymore, but they love to tell the story at sleepovers and at campfires, and they love to try to get their friends to jump with the story of La Llorona. But the one thing those kids like to do is to swim down by the rivers. Now, the rivers can be really wonderful to swim in, but they can also be really dangerous. When the waters come down from the mountains, if you dive into the river, you can't see a rock, you might hit your head and break your neck or you might get your feet tangled up in a branch and then the current pushes you down and you drown. So for years and years, parents have tried to keep the kids from swimming in the river when it's dangerous. They've put up fences. They've put up signs. Kids pull the signs down and climb over the fences. Until finally, some genius parent or grandparent 50 or 60 years ago told the kids, hey, go swimming all you want, but... If you feel fingers grabbing at your heels or fingernails digging into your shoulders, it's the last thing you will ever feel because it's La Llorona pulling you down. Last summer when I was in Mexico, I heard that there was a sighting of La Llorona down by one of the rivers. I went down and there were these four tough teenage boys hanging at the edge of the water. They were daring each other to go in, but nobody went in. Finally, one of the boys said, I'm not scared, I'm going in. As he walked into that water. He put his toe in and he must have stepped on one of those branches because he pulled his toe out like he would stepped on something sharp and we all jumped back and then we all laughed. And then the four tough teenage boys went into the water and all of a sudden on the other side of the river, this bush began to shake. There was no wind. We heard. We got scared. One of the kids turned around to come out. We heard it again. At this point, we were almost ready to start running down the road when we heard, (laughs) and this little eight-year-old boy comes tumbling out of the bush. He said, I got you. We got so mad. The one kid grabbed that little boy, dunked him like 10 times. Every time he came up, he said, you thought I was La Llorona splash. You guys thought I was La Llorona. Afterwards, Miguel, the oldest teenager there, said, I know how you can see La Llorona. He said, all you need to do is put a glass of water in your window. She'll come up from the river and she'll drink it. He said that he tried it on a Wednesday night at midnight. He put that glass of water in the window, and he said, Antonio, ¿sabes qué pasó? Do you know what happened? I said, what? He said, nothing. But Thursday night at midnight, do you know what happened? I said, what? He said, nothing. But Friday night at midnight, do you know what happened now? We're all laughing. We said nothing. He said, wrong. Friday night at midnight, I remembered the American legend of Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. I heard that in America, if you go into the bathroom, shut the door, shut off the light, look into the mirror, and you say Bloody Mary five times, she comes out of the mirror, and she scratches you. He asked me if that was true. I said, oh, yeah. I remember when I was younger, my cousin Julie told me about Bloody Mary. She came down from Boston. She was 13. I was about seven or eight. She said, have you heard of the legend of Bloody Mary? I said, what's that? She said, go into the bathroom. Ah, You're too scared to do it. I'm not scared. Yeah, you're a scaredy cat. I'm not a scaredy cat. I'm going to do it. I went into the bathroom, shut the door, shut off the light, looked into the mirror, too scared, looked into the sink. I said, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary. I looked up into the mirror. You know what I saw? My reflection. Ha! I went running out. Julie said, I knew you were a scaredy cat. She went in there, shut the door, shut off the light. I put my ear to the door to listen. I heard her say, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. Tony, Bloody Mary's got me. I said, oh no, what are you going to do? Come in and save me. I said, no way. She came out, her arms were all scratched. She said, Bloody Mary got me. I didn't go to the bathroom in my house for weeks after that. My mom made Julie call me on the phone and told me she made the whole thing up. Well, anyway, Miguel told me that he decided to mix the two legends. And he said, Antonio, nunca mezcla dos leyendas. He said, never mix two legends. Because he put that glass of water in his window, went into the bathroom, shut the door, shut off the light, looked into the mirror, and he said, La Llorona. La Llorona. La Llorona. La Llorona. La Llorona. When he came back, the glass was still there, but he heard her voice across the yard. E- put four more glasses of water in the window, made sure they were full all the way up with water, went into the bathroom, said La Llorona as many times as he could stand it. When he came back, one of those glasses was gone. He put his back to the wall. The four glasses were above him on the window ledge. He looked around his room to see if his brother was there, checked under the bed, looked in the closet. It wasn't his brother. On the other side of that thin brick wall, he heard a sickening sound. It sounded like bones scraping brick, and he heard, The sound of La Llorona drinking. He peered around the ledge and just in time he, he saw her thin, bony hand pull down the fourth glass. This time he slid out from the ledge and looked up at the three remaining glasses just as that bloated, disgusting hand with black, crusty fingernails pulled that third glass down. There was two glasses left. And as she grabbed that second glass, Miguel thought, I am going to prove that La Llorona exists. He stood up, was eye level with that glass, waited for her to grab that glass, but she didn't. He began to think if he was imagining the whole thing, when just then that hand reached around that last glass and her hand lingered there. It didn't move. And he said, now I'm going to prove she exists. He took a deep breath, reached up just as he got close to that hand, it reached around and grabbed his hand, pulled him out of the window, looked him square in the eye, and with a horrible voice said, "Dingo que ir al baño. I have to go to the bathroom. And with that, she disappeared.
1: Thank you for listening to the story story podcast show the love find ingrid nixon at ingridnixon.com and Antonio Sacre at antoniosacre.com tell them you heard them on the podcast and now want to hear them tell more stories we're in strange times for performing artists but art is needed now more than ever so many storytellers are doing online events so you can see them from the comfort of your home go find your favorite tellers from the podcast and discover what they can bring to you did you know You can connect with the podcast on Facebook or Instagram at Story Story Podcast or me at Rachel Lanharding. You can see the fairy tale sponsor ads on the Story Story Podcast Instagram and Facebook page. While you're there, let me know the favorite story you have heard or the favorite stories of your childhood. Who knows? Maybe you'll hear them here soon. The beautiful brains behind the fairy tale sponsor was me diving into the murky water of mortgages. I mean, seriously, they're so complicated. We haven't bought a house yet, just to quell your curiosity at the moment, but mortgages! Ha! Huh? The inspiration for the true fairy tale was inspired by a two-sentence horror story. The music is by Poddington Bear. This podcast is made possible by patrons like you. Consider becoming a patron or joining the mailing list to get podcast goodies or writing a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps other story lovers find and enjoy the show. You will hear more stories next week. But until then, live happily ever after. Mary Kate opened up the door and there on the doorstep wrapped in his own blanket
0: was and to this day, Anansi spins webs so that he can catch the flea, the fly, and the moth that got away.
1: If you go down to the lake on a clear day, When the water lies as calm as a sheet of glass, you can still see the rooftops of the castle glittering in the sunlight. And if you listen really closely, you can even hear the festive music from the royal
2: Once Upon a Time, and welcome to the story... <clears throat> let's get more. Woo-hoo.
1: Um...